Today, I feel like Bilbo Baggins. Uh, interesting. I'm not feeling like Gandalf. Uh, that's too bad because I'm having a little bit of intellectual wanderlust today. You know, between the two of us, we've spent a lot of time working in and studying the U.S. rental housing market. We've covered it a lot on the podcast. So I find myself wondering what else is out there? What are rental markets like in other parts of the world? Yeah, I sometimes think about that too. It's an interesting question. While it is common to hear discussions about the global economy, housing and rental markets are different and you don't see many comparisons. In addition to varying by country, rental markets are very localized within countries. I certainly don't know as much as I'd like about rental markets in other countries. Okay, so let's satisfy our curiosity on the podcast today. We just need a good guide. And one research project to rule them all. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today on the show, we're going to survey several rental markets around the world. Earlier this spring, Brookings published a fascinating case study project entitled What the U.S. Can Learn from Rental Housing Markets Across the Globe, and hosted an event with the contributing authors. We'll link to that in the show notes. The article and the event give some great insight into the way different markets operate and what it means for renters. Today, we are joined on the show by the lead author and editor of the project, Jenny Schutz, Senior Fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings. Welcome back to the show, Jenny. Thanks for having me. It's a great project and uh, lots of interesting lessons learned that I'm excited to cover. Maybe we can start with how this project came about, a little bit about the origin. Sure. This has actually been on my wish list of research projects for a number of years now, in part because I, I teach. I teach an urban economics class for planners, and I always thought it would be really helpful for them to have some basis of comparison to other countries. If you go looking in the academic literature, there are lots of research papers take a tiny little narrow topic and drill really deeply into it without giving you a lot of background context. And what I really wanted was just kind of a primer that laid out some basic information about a bunch of different countries and had standard information. Um, And I kept looking and couldn't find anything. So um, this was actually an idea that I uh, concocted maybe a year and a half ago and started talking to one of the contributing authors, Caroline Schmidt. And then it turned out the National Multifamily Housing Council was interested in this too. And so we were able to put together a group of people. The idea is that there's a lot of institutional knowledge about housing markets, just sort of basic context for how the legal environment and financial environment works. And people who live in that country and do research on it know all of this stuff in their head, but it's not written down someplace. Um, So what we did was tap a number of real estate scholars who are all accomplished scholars in their own right on real estate markets who have either lived in a country uh, for a long time or are from there before um, and have them essentially put down the, this institutional knowledge that's in their brain. Um, and we worked from a common framework of outline so that everybody had kind of the same pieces that they were assembling and then we could compare, uh, compare countries on kind of the same basis. So that must have been such a fun project to put together. Uh, so what countries did you cover? So we have six countries and we picked them to give some comparison on interesting dimensions, but also be within enough of a uh, similar framework that they would make sense. So these are all developed countries and wealthy countries um, and have kind of similar financial systems, which is important, obviously, for real estate. Um, So we have the US and the UK, uh, which are in some sense probably the closest to one another, France, Germany, and Spain, 
um, which gives some different uh, kind of legal and institutional environments, and then Japan. Um, and so this covers quite a lot of territory. And it was really interesting as we started getting the drafts to see where there were similarities and differences, because they weren't necessarily where I would have expected. That is fantastic, because I know um, from time to time, in terms of thinking about, you know, what can we expect about um, homeownership rates or, you know, really basic things about markets, um, you know, to, to dig through and try to find those things is really challenging. And then and then you don't know exactly how the data are covered. So to have people that are in it is really the best way to get that information. Did you start with questions like that or how do you get a handle for comparing these? Yeah. Yeah. We started with an outline um, that covered just some basic information. So start with how big is the rental market relative to the overall housing market? So what's the rentership rate and the ownership rate? Um, some comparison of renter household. What are the income and demographic characteristics of renters? Um, physical characteristics of the housing stock? Do rental units look the same in different kinds of places? And then really the meat of this was actually very much about the institutional context uh, so obviously, one of the big things for real estate is who has authority over land use decisions to authorize production of new housing. Um, how do countries approach uh, the question of landlord-tenant relationships? What what's the entity of government that controls that, and is there a, a consistent legal framework for that? Um, what kinds of roles do the public does the public sector play? Does the public sector own rental housing development? provide subsidies, what kinds of subsidies are available, how broad are those? Um, so we wanted to get kind of this basic framework that was similar for all kinds of um, kind of different angles, the the larger kind of institutional and legal and financial environment. So can, can we start with um, maybe just the most basic of basics across the, the countries, just the uh, homeownership slash uh, rentership rate uh, and see how those stack up? Yeah. So across the six countries, there's a really wide range of rentership rates. Germany has the highest rentership rate. It's a majority renter country with about 54% of all households renting their homes. Um, it was the only one of the six countries that's majority renter. Um, and that follows from some from uh, policy decisions that the, the government made. At the low end is Spain with 23%, right? So the rentership rate in Germany is double that in Spain. And it's not just a matter of income because those are both relatively wealthy countries and actually Germany is generally considered to be a higher income country. The other four kind of cluster in about the low to mid thirties. Um, so with some smaller differences, but those two real outliers on the top and bottom. So that's, that's interesting. And, you know, there, there are a couple of ways uh, we can go with that, I think, but um, I mean, one thing that, that just occurs to me with such different numbers across some of the, some of the countries, it, does that reflect a, a difference in value system? Like, do some countries just value ownership differently than than others, or is there something else going on there? Just in the you know the way things just grew up over time. It definitely reflects the values of the country, and in particular, whether or not homeownership is an explicit policy goal of the national government. Um, and all of the countries except for Germany, it is. The countries have, if you sort of parse the, the words of politicians or if you look at the way they're designing their policy, all of them explicitly encourage homeownership. Um, and mostly they do this through the tax code. They provide tax incentives for people to own their home that renters don't get. Germany is the one country which is different. 
Um, and they, in a sense, have flipped the mortgage interest deduction from the U.S. policy. So in the U.S., if you own your own home, you can deduct the interest you pay on your mortgage up to a certain limit from the income uh, that you pay federal income taxes on. And so an owner and renter of the same income, the owner will essentially owe less taxes, right? So that's how the U.S. encourages people to buy homes. Germany does the exact opposite. If you own a property that you don't live in and you rent it out, you can deduct the interest paid on the mortgage of your rental property from your income taxes. But if you live in a property that you own, you can't deduct the, the interest from your taxes. So they have made a conscious decision to use federal tax policy to encourage people to be in the business of renting out properties. That was a really interesting difference to me. I had never seen that before. So that gets to um, you know, a related question then. It, I mean, it would sound like in Germany, right? They're encouraging a lot of um, just mom and pops or you know, the average family to, uh, to be a rental uh, you know, a property owner uh, and operator. Uh, how does that uh, shake out across the countries? Yeah, that was one of the other kind of fundamental differences um, that I wasn't necessarily looking for, but that came through pretty clearly. The U.S. has sort of the biggest footprint of institutional owners or corporate owners in the rental market. So if you if you live in a big city in the U.S., it's not that unusual for there to be giant apartment buildings, which are owned by, say, a real estate investment trust or maybe by a private equity or some sort of a, a professional asset manager um, a company whose entire business is owning and renting out managing properties. It turns out that that's really unusual in the other countries that we looked at. More than half of the rental properties uh, or rental units owned by individual owners or small scale owners. So it's not unusual for you know a person or a family um, to own a rental property. In, in Germany, actually, one of the interesting things is that. Um, property passes to all of the inheritors of a will. So if somebody dies and they had five kids, all of the kids inherit the, the house the parents own. And so you have this sort of unit of a group of heirs who collectively own rental property, rent them out and collect the income. Um, but in all of the other countries too, um, in France and Spain and Japan, uh, a lot of the rental housing is owned by just, you know, what we would think of as, you know, a family that owns one or two rental properties and rent it out. That's a, it is interesting how so many of the topics um, can seem familiar and uh, with something like the mortgage interest deduction and, and, you know, kind of linking to what we call the American dream in terms of home ownership, uh, you know, uh, sounds like lots of countries have, have, you know, similar home ownership rates and, and they've targeted home ownership. So it's not necessarily just the American dream and the mortgage interest deduction um, uh, is, is such a, uh, ingrained part of society here um, that, that that it's just interesting to hear about it objectively as kind of being a choice elsewhere um, in terms of policy. But uh, then I guess an, another segment of the market that, like you say, there's the, we also end up talking about the institutional owners versus the mom and pop and, and how that kind of sounds, it, it's, you know, different other places as well in terms of having those segments too. And um how about um, public versus private and uh, and providing for those uh, who struggle to get housing? Yeah, and that was that's also quite a big difference with a lot of variation, both in sort of the, the size of the role that the public sector plays and what kinds of roles they play. Um, you know, so to start with sort of the U.S. context, 
public housing in the traditional sense that's built and owned and operated by the public sector with a federal government subsidy is a really, really small share of our rental housing market. You know, even in the biggest cities like New York, it's still a small share of overall rental units. Um, but in other countries, publicly owned housing can be a much larger share. So in the UK, for instance, um, they built a lot of social housing after World War II um, because there was an overall shortage of housing. And so they uh, have these local housing councils that built it um, and there was a federal subsidy attached. As of 1980, social housing was 30% of the total market, not of the rental market, of the total housing market in the UK. So it was a really big footprint. Um, and then in, uh, in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher instituted a new program where tenants who lived in social housing could buy their units. Um, and these were you know, big multifamily properties, so essentially like turning them into condos. Um, and through that program, a lot of the more desirable social housing transitioned to being owner-occupied as the tenants bought it. So the social housing sector now is about 17% of the housing market. It's shrunk by a lot. And that's split owned between local public agencies um, and then these housing councils, which are, are um, sort of nonprofit organizations, similar to some of the nonprofits who own uh, subsidized housing in the U.S. Um, but in, in most, so uh, France also has a much larger kind of social housing, uh, part of which is owned by public agencies and some of which is also owned by public-private partnerships, which is kind of an interesting twist. So can we talk about the the, uh, the public-private partnerships a little bit? How do those work? Yeah, um, they look a little bit different depending on where they are. Um, France actually has a couple of ways that corporations contribute to sort of the, the availability of affordable housing. Um, in some cases, uh, corporations actually pay pay a tax, essentially sort of a wage tax, that goes into the, the pot of funds used to pay for housing subsidies some of that goes directly to subsidized housing that's owned by these uh, public-private entities, and some of it goes to support uh, just general rental assistance, more similar to what we would think of as housing vouchers. So there's a much larger kind of, um, you know, sort of direct corporate role in financing below-market-rate housing. Interesting. So, and then um, I think we haven't talked much about Spain in this context, uh, but I remember from the the, uh, the talk you gave that uh, Spain had a really interesting dynamic here. Yeah. So Spain has seen a big change in the composition of their housing markets since about the 1960s. Um, it used to be also a majority renter country. And then over time, the country subsidized homeownership, encouraged that as a form of wealth building and as a, a means of stability. Um, and so their housing transitioned away from primarily renter occupied to owner occupied They've also gone through some really interesting changes in the way they regulate leases and uh, and landlord-tenant relationships. It's regulated by the central government uh, rather than local or provincial. Um, and there, there was a time period when le leases essentially never ended. So the lease was open-ended. Um, the tenant could terminate it if they wanted to, but landlords virtually had no ability to end a lease or terminate a relationship including if the tenant died, any survivors, a spouse or children, essentially inherited the lease and they then occupied that indefinitely. Um, you know, so that these sort of provisions that protected tenants made it really risky for landlords to go into the business. And that's part of the reason why the rental sector shrank, just because they didn't have 
people who are willing to supply uh, properties. That, that's kind of an in- interesting dynamic, right? It, it sounds then like the lease becomes the property of the renter while the structure is the property of the owner. Yeah, um, and both Spain and Japan have had um, have sort of gone through this period of having very restrictive tenant protections, particularly with the inability to terminate a lease and to push a tenant out, even for non-compliance or non-payment. Um, and and both of those countries have really struggled with how do you provide adequate tenant protections, particularly for people who need it, prevent abusive behavior by landlords, but at the same time making it financially attractive for either people or companies to rent out properties. And both of them have really, both countries have really struggled to find the right balance. And I remember also during the discussion that, uh, I mean, I think the U.S. is often um, uh, struggles with getting housing built because localities need to deal with um, providing uh, the funds for the education system and, and all of the other kind of public amenities um, from from local um, sources, but but as you said, in Spain, that that can be done at the national level, and so that that does affect kind of the choice of of having units built in an area, or can have the effect. Yeah, um, the idea of particularly school funding being primarily a local responsibility is something that the rest of the country finds very bizarre. Um, so France, for instance, almost all school funding is provided by the national government, and so child in every school district all across the country receives essentially an equal amount of funding um, and the government just allocates that, which then takes away one of the reasons why local governments might not want to build, particularly build lower cost housing, right? worrying about the amount of revenues it brings in through property taxes and the cost of it. If the federal government picks up the tab for services, then sure, why not build some more housing? You know, the another aspect of this with a sort of uh, public view and, and uh, you know, Thinking of school funding, it also makes me just think of, of differences in land use policy and you know zoning. And that is you know, something you've covered a lot in the U.S. We've talked about. Uh, I think we talked about it with you last time you were on the on the podcast. Uh, how does that factor in, in in some of the different countries? Sure. Yeah. So for listeners who aren't familiar, the the U.S. Uh, land development process is controlled mostly by local governments through a set of regulations. Zoning is sort of the main piece of that. Zoning says. You know, this this parcel of land is zoned for single family or multifamily, and what's the maximum height of the building you can put? And what's the process to change it? Um, so we we have written rules that are developed and enforced by local governments uh, that guide what you can develop. And in the U.S., most zoning has a strong preference for single family detached properties, right? So those can usually be built as of right. Multifamily properties usually require a discretionary process, a special permit, or something. Um, which you know is certainly a problem in the U.S. that it's hard to get permission to build multifamily rental properties. So you know I'm used to thinking about all of the problems with the U.S. zoning system, um, and then I read the U.K. case study, and it turns out there's actually a worse model. <laughs> it's called not having zoning at all. They just they don't have uh, they don't have the equivalent of land use maps that designate things, and there's, there's at least some use that can be developed as of right. Every change of land use in the UK has to go through a case-by-case basis of decision. So they they have planning councils, local planning councils um, that are appointed kind of similar to a, a planning board or a zoning board in the US, but literally every single change of use has to be approved. So there's not even some baseline. 
Um, and you can imagine what that does. <laughs> you know, a developer or you know a current property owner who has a single family house wants to build you know a backyard cottage or something. They have to go in front of the planning council and request permission. And there's no there's no standard. There's no sort of you know expectation that similar properties or places that are next door to one another will be treated the same way. Um, and the UK has just a horrendous housing shortage, particularly around. Uh, around London and sort of the the more desirable housing markets in the southeast of the country, they really haven't built enough housing, and it's extremely hard and expensive to build, um, which shows up in much higher housing prices. I would imagine then that um, you know we talk about NIMBYism in the U.S. I, I can only imagine what it would be uh, in a case where there's so much uh, local input on every decision. Yes, and the UK has a lot of the same dynamics that we that we do in the US. Existing homeowners don't want things to change. Uh, they also put a very high premium on historic preservation. Um, obviously, they've got a lot of really old housing, and so, so keeping both low density housing in what they think of as sort of you know rural or quasi rural uh, areas, and preserving historic properties, and this just sort of general nimbyism. Um, you know, puts a puts a real onus on developers that want to build, especially anything in in large scale. Mm-hmm. And I think um, so. So the UK then I, I expect uh, has a, an aging housing stock that, that that in desirable areas is going up. You know, to very very high prices. Um, and and in other countries, uh, do you see that uh, the stock gets added to more regularly, and that and that uh, they you'd be able to see over time development cycles are affected by kind of the, the policies in each country? Yeah, and here Japan is just a fascinating outlier. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with Japanese uh, kind of, I guess, geography or geology, um, Japan is, is subject to a lot of very large earthquakes, um, even more so than places like California in the U.S., because of that, they have um, they update their building codes every time there's a major earthquake. Um, so they're constantly designing new technologies that are more earthquake resilient. When they adopt a new uh, a new building code with these new technologies, all existing buildings essentially become structurally obsolete. And so they replace the housing stock at a very high rate. Older buildings, there's just there's very little demand for it because people don't want a building that's not going to stand up to an earthquake. You know, buildings get torn down and replaced very frequently. Japan also has much more kind of relaxed standards of development um, in cities. So they don't have, you know, a single family zone or a multifamily zone and distinguish between residential and commercial. So you can see there's much more diversity of housing stock, of type, of size, and of age within a neighborhood. You'll see, you know, very tall buildings and small buildings right next to each other all over the place just normal. There are no rules that say that they aren't, uh, that they can't do. So when we think of the rental stock though, in, in Japan, um, just going back to the discussion of, of who the owners are, uh, of those properties. I mean, I think really tall buildings must be large institutional owner. Uh, otherwise how else would they raise the money to build it? But, uh, what does it look like in Japan? Yeah. Uh, there, there's a really fascinating trend, um, of individual, people or families owning one unit in a high-rise building. So, you know, sort of like owning one condo in a a large building. Um, And the the tax structure in Japan incentivizes individuals to own these rental properties 
So there's a pretty high demand for people who have some extra cash saved up to buy a rental property and rent it out and get the income from it. Um, but rather than having sort of a freestanding building, you just buy one condo in a building and rent it out. And so actually a very large share of these one room, what they call mansion apartments, which are actually tiny by, <laughs> by any US comparison, um, you know, a lot of these one room apartments in tall buildings are owned by individual owners rather than investors. I thought it was interesting in the discussion too uh, that, uh, and, and tell me if I'm getting this right, but it, it seemed like it something that's fairly um, you, you would think lease term is is not a uh, a major driver of policy, but uh, we touched on it a little bit before, and and in the in the program you touched on it, but I think in Japan there's there, there can be extended long leases, and by having units that are small as people's stage of life changes they may have to move out of that unit and thus um uh, it turns in it, the the unit might turn over which is needed but but it's but that makes it so that they have a disproportionate number of these efficiencies is is that a correct read yeah that's exactly right um yeah japan actually has they have two different kinds of leases one of which has existed for a long time which is sort of an indefinite term um, that it, it, in fact, it, it's not fixed. So you don't sign a lease for one year or two years. You sign a lease that's open ended, um, and to terminate it, there generally has to be just cause, and it's quite difficult for landlords to terminate it. Um, so yes, that's a as sort of a way. And there also are um, restrictions at the end of a lease and the renewal uh, or the renewal of a lease how much the landlord can raise the rent, which kind of functions like rent control, although it's not formally called that. Because of this, landlords are often wary of renting to, say, a family who's likely to live in an apartment for 10 years. Um, if they turn out to be a bad tenant, you can't get rid of them, and you can't also raise the rent during that time period. Um, and so the strong preference is to have these small one-room apartments, you know, an efficiency, which is really only appealing to, you know, one person or maybe a couple for a short period of time. And so there's both a matching of the unit type to the household type, um, you know, so there's more demand for kind of renting to younger households, college students, or in big cities, people who maybe are there at the early part of their career. Um, and there's not a lot of family-sized rental housing and landlords who are willing to rent families. Does this create an issue? Right, I think we we hear a lot about uh, with Japan an aging population and and uh, population shrinkage over time. It would seem like uh, there there may be an issue with that model uh, coming up, if not now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there um, it, an aging population creates all sorts of difficulties with whether the the existing units are kind of the appropriate location and the appropriate physical structure um, and so forth. And yeah, this model that you're only willing to rent to, to younger people and you have lots of older people um, may mean that they've got vacancies in the efficiencies if they don't have the right kind of tenants to lease to them. And at the same time, people who need different kinds of rental housing, more space and can't find it. This is, uh, I think it's so fascinating that uh, that you had this uh, study because uh, these are the kind of things that would be so hard to learn from <laughs> from studying these markets from a distance. So having somebody who who's embedded in those markets and knows them and is studying housing, we can kind of get through to these things um, way more efficiently. Um, well, one thing that also came up, I think, is uh, 
that, that seems like a theme across across many places was was one that we talk about uh, a lot as well is that there there tends to be a, a shortage of the, of this rental housing. Uh, it, it's a little um, surprising in that you would think that uh, that this is solvable somewhere, but uh, it does seem like there's a there's a shortage in many of these countries. Yeah, it's not a the shortage isn't kind of nationwide in most places. Um, mm-hmm. Like Germany, for instance, you know, has a very renter-friendly uh, policies and historically hasn't had a shortage of rental units, in part because they really encourage people to configure existing buildings, right? So if you own a large house, um, there are tax benefits for splitting it up into multiple apartments and renting some of them out. Um, so they've encouraged supply to come online, but particularly the last probably five to six years, there's, there isn't enough rental housing in the really hot housing markets. So, you know, Berlin has an, an over uh, a disproportionate share of high-paid, high-skilled jobs, um, and lots of people want to move to Berlin. They haven't been able to provide enough supply to come online. And Berlin is actually, I guess about a year ago, um, experimented with a, a new pretty restrictive rent regulation um, that has been going through some legal challenges. But so they're, they're sort of isolated. I mean, most of these countries kind of the largest cities where there's the most demand in the strongest labor markets have some shortage of housing, uh, but they often have softness in other parts of the country. So do you see efforts uh, in these countries to try and uh, maybe redistribute employment or, or find ways to, to leverage those units elsewhere and strike a different balance? Yeah, that, that wasn't something that really case studies. Um, and there's there's quite a bit of variation in how centralized the labor markets are. So the UK is probably the most centralized. I mean, you know, the Greater London has just an outsized share of uh, particularly desirable jobs and sort of everybody who's young and entering their career wants to live in London um, and they just can't. Um, you know, France is not quite as centralized in Paris, although there are some uh, some parts of that. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's much tougher in places where jobs are unevenly distributed and often they're unevenly distributed for a reason, um, you know, either because there are sort of big companies headquartered in places, you know, the UK, so much of London's uh, job market has been driven by the financial sector. We actually did not get into what the implications of Brexit might be, whether there's going to be softening demand in the London real estate market um, if it's less attractive to international companies. Interesting. What about uh, what about like just uh, commuters? Right? Do you see in in places where there's high rent in the cities that you just start to get some more sprawl, or is that really not not so much an issue? I mean, all of these countries have sort of broadly speaking similar patterns to the U.S. That lots of people work in the central city and live outside of it and commute. Um, all of these countries have had much more investment in public transportation systems for very long periods of time. And so it's much easier for people to commute by train rather than by private car. And, you know, sort of all the the complementary policies to housing and land use, you know, do you invest in building a train system? Do you tax cars uh, or tax parking to make that less attractive as an option? Um, You know, the U.S. is really an outlier in being very car dependent and in not limits on uh, development. You know, most of the European countries also have still pretty strong subsidies for agriculture and strong protections for land that's used for agriculture. So you don't have to get very far outside of Paris or Frankfurt to be into active farms. So the housing in the suburbs is much more compact and much closer both to train stations 
um, and to the city center so that you have a, a sharper divide from kind of you know, city and residential areas to pure farmland. You know, the, the degree of sprawl in the U.S. is really unique. I suppose maybe some of that has to do with there's just a lot more land in the U.S. And so you can you can sprawl farther and, and farm farther away. There's vastly more land um, and our sort of fragmented local governments governance also contributes to that. You have, you know, 200 some local governments in the Boston metro area, each one of which controls its own land use. Uh, European countries are more likely to have um, sort of regional governance that makes decisions at a larger scale. And with with all these issues, um, do, do you find um, beyond public housing, as you think about for us, we have um, uh, the missing middle or workforce housing that, that, that are becoming issues or have been an issue, a growing issue. Um, are, are there similar issues in, in these other countries and are there ways to, to address that? Yeah. So, the, you know, other countries have, I'd say, at least somewhat more of missing middle in the sense of kind of smaller properties, um, particularly because those are kind of a good fit for the smaller family investors. One of the other really striking differences is that most other countries provide much more widespread uh, household level rental subsidies. So both France and Germany, for instance, have universal rental assistance for low income households. Um, so you know the equivalent of housing vouchers, but instead of having a pot of money that Congress has to allocate and puts a cap on every year, it's just an entitlement. So every poor household in France and Germany can apply to the federal government and receive rental assistance. Um, and, and there's just there's no limit on that. And so, you know, if everybody gets rental assistance, then it's less of a concern that if there isn't enough social housing to house everybody, that the private market can absorb them and landlords will be guaranteed of the rent. I got rough drafts of all of the case studies from the authors and went through and kind of made notes to make sure I understood everything. Um, and I remember reading the German case study and Caroline had said, you know, that there's there's rental assistance for low income families. And I put in a comment, I said, do you mean all poor families can get rental assistance, that it's not subject to a budget cap? And this back to her and she returned it to me and said, of course, all poor families can get rental assistance. Maybe building on that. So with the, those, you know, and rental supports for, for everybody that is entitled to receive them, does that change the problems of homelessness uh, in, those po- in, uh, in those countries? Or is that able to be measured in a, in a reliable way? That's not something that we tried to capture. Um, I don't know if comparable homeless statistics. Um, in general, it was, it was not always easy to find statistics that measure the same thing. Um, so I, I don't know if there's, a, if there's a similar sort of problem. I will say that universal rental assistance is still subject to some eligibility um, so, for instance, in, you know, in, in France and Spain, there have been issues with refugees from other countries who are not legal migrants and are not intended to stay in the long run. And typically they are not eligible for this. So there, there are likely to still be some people who are not getting assistance, but it's like that's a more complicated question than just there isn't enough funding. Considering um, uh, the, dif- the different policies in the different countries and how that, you know, uh, provides supports to renters and could impact uh, homelessness, uh, and, and that is, you know, very hard to measure in, in any individual um, country or city uh, and uh, is, is one that we grapple with here as well. But uh, 
that there can be uh, context from from recent history with the pandemic, and I think that lots of areas have considered um, the risk of um, people losing homes during the pandemic and thus not having a, a, a place that's safe health wise. And, and I think that there was considerations related to how these countries related, uh, reacted to the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they, in a couple of ways, similar to how the U.S. has done it. So most of them have also imposed a nationwide uh, temporary eviction moratorium, similar to the one the CDC put in place. So just landlords can't evict tenants. Um some of them have, instead of providing uh, kind of additional rental assistance, some of them just provided more wage replacements. So most of the European countries um, just sort of paid people for their wages that were lost rather than parsing that out into, uh, you know, here's a stimulus payment and here's a rental assistance payment or homeownership assistance, um, just, uh, you know, income replacement in general. Um, and I will say one sort of interesting note on the eviction moratorium, you know, for the U.S., this was a huge thing. This is, a, you know, we've never had a nationwide eviction moratorium before. It turns out France has an eviction moratorium every year during the winter. So landlords can't evict tenants, I think, between the 1st of November and the 1st of March. Um, so just you can't kick people out when it's cold outside, um, which is a really different concept than anything that we've had here. Oh, that's really interesting, and and uh, so did you? Did they find in in the other countries that uh, you know, this different approach was it as effective, more effective, less effective, or is that really hard to say? I don't think we've seen data on sort of how many people are displaced, um, and in general, I mean that that's a hard one to measure in the U.S. We don't have consistent data on evictions. The eviction process is really different across states. There aren't consistent records captured. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., it's not clear if we're going to have sort of a wave of people who are evicted versus a bunch of people whose leases end and their landlords don't renew them. That doesn't show up as an eviction, but will wind up with a person moving out of their apartment someplace else. So this this is going to be, I think, a headache for a lot of us trying to figure out, in fact, what's the effect of, of the pandemic on displacement and movements of people, which may or may not go through the court system. Right, that that is certainly a challenging nuance to to think through, and and certainly challenging for so many families. Um, you know, I, I think there's one there's one topic I'd like to go back to a little bit before we wrap up today, which is that that question of just different ownership styles and what that might mean uh, for just standardization across the country. I mean, you know, certainly in the U.S., we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of large institutional owners and a lot of larger apartments, but we also have a lot of mom and pop owners. Uh, but h- how have the the different countries uh, seen that? Do you, do you have a lot of variation among uh, practices? Uh, you know, just from one landlord uh, or one property owner to another, or is there some level of standardization with those mom and pops? There's much more standardization uh, because almost all of the other countries regulate leases and landlord-tenant relationships at the national government level rather than at the local or, in the case of the U.S., the states. Um, and so there, there is a lot of consistency on what the legal environment is. Um, France has a, a pretty complete set of rules around this. So, for instance, they regulate what landlords are allowed to ask of prospective tenants, what kind of documents they have to provide. Um, they have standard length of leases, uh, so it's three years for an individual investor and six years for an institutional investor, so much longer than in the U.S. 
Um, they also have uh, required information about disclosures, so any kind of physical limitations uh, with the building. Germany also has kind of a standard, a, a standard national process if the tenant finds that there's a maintenance issue uh, for reporting that and getting that repaired. Um, so yeah, all of these countries that, that have national level regulation have, if not kind of one standard model lease, then a handful, and there are areas that don't get negotiated individually. You know, I, I think that's an interesting area for the U.S. to think about, particularly as cities are encouraging things like accessory dwelling units or duplexes, where you're likely to have a lot of individual owners who have one apartment that they rent out. You know, in some sense, providing at least some model version of this takes the burden off of the landlord to kind of create a lease themselves. Um, and I, I think also can provide some legal protection so that individual landlords aren't guessing what am I allowed to ask for a tenant and what am I not that would get me into trouble with fair housing laws. Um, so there are potentially some advantages for both landlords and tenants in having standardization. That said, you know, the U.S. regulates landlord-tenant laws at the state level. We haven't had a federal role in that, and I'm not quite sure how you would go about implementing one. Well, Jenny, this has been such a fascinating discussion. I'm just learning how all of these these countries do things, uh, you know, trying to solve the same problem, but do it differently and, and uh, um, you know, have their own challenges, but also their own successes. Just a really great discussion and, and congrats on some really great work. Uh, again, that's going to be in our show notes for anybody who wants to uh, to read it or, or uh, see the discussion with the... Uh, with the contributors for each of the case studies. So again, thank you, Jenny, so much. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.